0: Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic Pollster with GBAO.
1: And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican Pollster with Echelon Insights.
0: And each week we bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So we're remote today, but are you in D.C., right?
1: I am in DC. Uh, I am traveling tomorrow. I'm going to be in California, and then up in New York on Friday doing some Fox stuff. So on the road, but not today. I'm I'm home because I need to pack for all of this.
0: Yes, and I'm on the road the next several weeks, so we will be remote, and we may have some special guests. So don't. Do not fear. We, the show always goes on, especially in the middle. Oh, of yes. We've got some friends who are going to help
1: us get through these next couple weeks. Yes.
0: <laughs> get by a little help on our friends. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> so, what are the top lines this week?
1: Top lines this week the presidential primary rolls on as Bernie Sanders' surge nationally continues. But some new polls for Joe Biden in South Carolina could show that his campaign may have a path to slingshot around back up into the standings. Then we'll talk a little bit about people's perceptions of the national political environment. Do Republicans get tired of winning, as the president might say? Uh, and do Democrats think that there is winning in their future? Then we'll take a look at some polling around health care. What do people experience when it comes to the health care system? And finally, the latest polling on coronavirus as the virus spreads beyond China more extensively we will take a look at how much people around the world are familiar with the disease and how afraid people are
0: so first we have a lot of primary polling there was a time when we didn't have a lot of primary polls we didn't have a lot of South Carolina primary polls we were just looking at national polls things were steady but now that's not where we are now things are pretty volatile the polling nationally has changed quite a bit over the last you know, few weeks or so. Um, Sanders in the uh, 538 average is almost at 28%. Um, Biden has, has dropped. Warren dropped in over the course of January, but seems to have bumped up slightly. Buttigieg up slightly. Klobuchar remaining, you know, stable. And Bloomberg having a surge from his big. Um, television push. Uh, still, he is now at sixteen percent in his in the national average. I don't know if you know this, and I don't know what the reactions were on the right of the debate last night. So we're recording this on Wednesday, uh, and so the South Carolina debate was last night, and then there was a debate last week. So now we're really in a place where there's you know there's just a lot to follow. The debates were spicier than I think previous debates were. Um,
1: spicier. That's an, a good adjective to use. <laughs> extremely diplomatic. <laughs> spicy I, can be a good thing, you know. I like spicy foods. <laughs> Yay, spicy.
0: <laughs> it was the first, It was, just so, you know, it was the first time that my, our, my kids were interested in one of the debates where they sat there and were asking questions about, like, you <laughs> know, Things i had never had to explain to them before. So, you know, that was interesting and, and saying like, okay, what is, you know, what are all these things are that the kids are talking about? And that, you know, that was, I felt like a interesting, you know, it's always a thing when you have kids, they just sort of spring questions on you that you were not necessarily prepared to answer that day. And so I was not prepared to like answer a follow-up question about every single comment every, you know, candidate was saying. So that was kind of a, a, like a hectic sort of play-by-play that I had to do. And then Beckett, who's four, following a little bit less closely, when Amy Klobuchar said, you know, we need to make sure every kid has a good start, he went right up to the television, put his face up to the television and said, I am a kid. You don't want me to have a good start? How dare you?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Was Jules
0: filming it so he can make an ad? I was like, please, I was like, please (laughs) take a picture. I'm like, she wants you to have a good start, buddy. I think you heard it wrong. (laughs) Anyway, just so you know that not everybody hears your message exactly as you say it. That's, you know probably not typical we did tell him she wants you to have a good start but yeah he was (laughs) like nose to nose with the with the television anyway that was how that was how we watched the debate how did it look from the other side
1: so i confess last night i went to go see amazing musical artist, Alan Stone, perform at the 930 Club. Oh, Um, nice. I had bought those tickets long before I knew when the Democratic debate, or at least long before I put this particular Democratic debate on my calendar. Yeah. So I, like, left the concert as the debate seemed like it was wrapping. And so this was the second time now that I have experienced a debate First and foremost, through reading tweets and watching clips. Um, but everything I saw suggested total mayhem. And I, again, I, I, I don't want to like, look for too many parallels between 2016 Republicans and 2020 Democrats because it's not the same. And the forces reacting on the different parties are very different. But I just remember so much you know, going into the campaign being like, man, for Republicans, we've really got all of our best, you know, our rock star governors, all, like the A-team is running for president. And by the time we got to this point in the cycle, I'd watch the debates and I'd be like, where did I go wrong? Like, what, what, what happened? What, this is the crew that made it this far? Oh, my gosh. And so I just feel like uh, some of those parallels continue where... I have to wonder when like the postmortem when all this gets written and people go back, you know, the first couple of debates sort of got panned as snooze fests. Now, maybe that's unfair. And yeah, we should probably stop thinking about American politics like it's professional wrestling and that its primary job is to entertain us. But at the same time, I do wonder if, you know, there's so many pieces of opposition research uh, that, that, you know, have been sitting on the shelf I firmly believe these candidates all had here's stuff that Bernie Sanders has said and done that might make him not electable as president. Or, you know, as soon as Mike Bloomberg jumps in, here's all all the bad stuff about Mike Bloomberg. Now, the Bloomberg stuff, I get that not coming up until the last debate because he wasn't on the stage. But it just feels odd to me that like all of the sudden now suddenly everybody's deciding to go after Sanders. When if you look at these national trend lines, yes, Sanders has improved by looks to be about like six or seven points over, you know, or maybe closer to eight will be generous over the last couple of months. You know, he has risen in the polls, but he has always been a top three, top tier A list contender in this campaign. And the fact that like, n- people are only now just going like, oh my gosh, this might be my last debate up on stage let me fire everything, I think leads it to looking chaotic. And I mean, I guess on the other, the counter argument is you had Kamala Harris trying this very ineffectively right from the beginning, trying to go after Biden. And it didn't work for her. And effectively she wound up leaving the race, but I just, it feels like everybody's suddenly panicking. And that's what the clips I saw suggested The people are in panic mode About themselves, not I'm not necessarily saying panic mode about stop Sanders, because frankly, that didn't seem like the panic on the stage. It was like Amy Klobuchar being like, man, I got to get rid of Pete once and for all right now. Or that was just the strangeness to me.
0: You know, the other thing which I know I've said this before, but it's interesting now since we have a few different data points looking at how people are responding to this electability post debate piece, where you don't see that much change. And so this is, I, I'm assuming, not really going through the kind of digestion of the press coverage, but just people's reaction. So 538 does a poll where they ask pre and post likelihood uh, of whether that candidate would be, you know, would beat Trump if they were the nominee um, for it, you know, before and after the debate. And then YouGov. And the economist does something similar. And, you know, it doesn't look like there's that much movement or that the movement or you know, the folks who say, you know, now this person has made the case seems to kind of track where folks were initially. So I you know, I don't know if the debates I mean, the debates drive news coverage, which then drives in particular the national vote. I mean, obviously the national vote can only really move with press coverage for the most part, you know, aside from obviously, you know, when you have Bloomberg advertising heavily nationally. But generally speaking, up until kind of very recently, the national poll numbers really were mirroring what, what the coverage was like. But I don't know if the debates themselves, when people look at them through their own eyes, are changing people in a substantive way, But but maybe they are
1: i feel like the the only thing that the debates have done that you can actually see in polls potentially is uh the the sort of bloomberg plateau after his underwhelming performance in the most recent debate you know that was his first first contact with voters um you know how's this going to work and i think to the extent that that seems to have in any way undercut his electability case but again that that's like a his first outing on the stage. For those who this is their, like, fifth debate, sixth debate, I don't know that it's changing voters' minds at this point. And they're getting asked the same questions by the moderators. There's not a lot of evolution of what they're being asked either. So at least that's not my perception.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I did see a couple people note, and it it was interesting, like, why hasn't there been a debate about, you know, in the recent debates about, impeachment or the rule of law or a more contrast with trump there was a lot of like you've said this about this other person on the stage, you know, <laughs> you want to say it to their face kind of, kind of questions, you know, there's a little bit more of that, a little bit less about like, you know, what what's going on nationally, the big major trends that are going on nationally. And and I know that some of that stuff happens when you have kind of a, a two person debate and you're down to the, to the general election and then they get, you know, can get a little bit deeper in some of the policy pieces and some of the early debates that had, you know, where there were two, waves of debates have very extended conversations about healthcare, So I don't want to minimize that. But, you know, it seems like the last few, you're right, have had have had more drawing out real contrast, you know, between the candidates that re reinforcing and rehashing some of the the things that they've been saying on the trail. And then this other question that's come up in the debates, and there's been polling to try to answer it, or at least internal polling, try to answer it. Again, it's, you know, it's trying to capture some of what these other outlets have been doing, like who's going to be, who can beat Trump, right? Who's made the case that they can beat Trump? Who do you think would beat Trump? What are the likelihood they're going to beat Trump? The Bloomberg campaign released, or at least shared, I don't know if they released the full top lines publicly, a poll in battleground house districts that shows, or you know, they say that shows that Sanders would be problematic in some of those congressional house districts. You know, that's to try to put data behind this conversation that you see in the debate between the candidates about who is electable, who is it, you know, will help candidates down ballot, who might not help candidates down ballot, whose ideas are mainstream versus not mainstream. This kind of debate is is going to be a little bit hard to settle in the abstract. You're asking people to kind of make conjectures uh, about this. But, you know, you do see some folks trying to release or share data on that to give people some some assistance if they want to make that case.
1: Um, Well, let's take a look at South Carolina because South Carolina is the next poll that is up on the docket. And uh, this, I think, is going to be it's fascinating because this is a case of of polls telling very different stories about Biden's strength, depending on which poll you look at. Um, So Joe Biden's sort of collapse post-Iowa in South Carolina was documented by a handful of polls, It was paired with the rise, the slow rise of Sanders, as well as those polls showing Tom Steyer kind of coming out of nowhere. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but I had um, an old friend, Anton Gunn, who he had been one of Obama's South Carolina guys in 2008, if he was a fellow at the Harvard IOP with me. And I I interviewed him about like, what do you think the deal is with Biden? And he was like, look, Biden just hasn't built an operation on the ground. Like he's not hiring local people. He's not, he says this is the super important state to him, but you don't see it here. He spent so much time in Iowa and New Hampshire that it's, it's not really credible. Meanwhile, Steyer really did not go to Iowa or New Hampshire. He really did spend a lot of time here and it shows. Um, but, but there are some polls suggesting that now that Biden has been able to focus his attention squarely on South Carolina, he may have recovered. Two polls telling that sort of story. One comes from PPP, public policy polling, one coming from Clemson University, their poll showing Biden up 18 over the rest of the field. Um, however, there are a variety of other polls telling a much closer story. East Carolina University with Biden up eight. Marist's poll um, among likely Democratic uh, primary voters only has Biden up four. YouGov among likely primary voters has Biden up five. So there, you know, I guess it depends. Do you think... Do you think voters care what the margin is, or is this purely a media construct? I do think that what the margin is matters somewhat, because even if it is a media construct, a lot of Super Tuesday voters will be looking at uh, what's going on in a place like South Carolina, or they'll just—you'll have a perception from watching the news. Does Joe Biden seem like a guy who knows how to win, or not? And if he crushes Sanders in South Carolina, suddenly. I think that gives him new life. Um, But you have to decide which of these polls do you agree with. I mean, Marist is very highly regarded. They have a a great score from the 538 poll tracker. A piece of information that I saw tweeted by the at Dick Nixon Twitter account. So just right. (laughs) (laughs) It was trying to make the case that actually the Clemson poll you can trust more because it does better at sampling older African-Americans, but I have no way to assess that claim whatsoever. Um, the, the racial breakdown of the Clemson poll, they have um, a, a majority of their sample is uh, black or African-American, 57 percent. Um, and then 43 percent of their sample is age 65 plus. A really small portion of their sample, only 17 percent, is under the age of 40 so if you're looking for demographic, you know, reasons why uh, Biden might be doing better in one poll versus another, in the Marist poll, they have a little bit younger of a sample, a fully a third of their sample is under age 44. Their breaks are a little bit different. So it's not totally apples to apples. They, I mean, Gen Z plus millennials is 24% of their Democratic sample. It doesn't even come close to that. It's, it's maybe half that in the, uh, in the Clemson poll. Um, and then in terms of race, they are comparable. But again, if if the argument is the Clemson poll is capturing more old African-Americans and that's really where Biden is good, um, that's just something to keep in mind as we're trying to understand how do these two polls come to very different conclusions. That's one sort of sample difference that, again, I got a tip off from a fake Twitter account that pretends to be Richard Nixon. And it appears on first examination to be accurate. <laughs>
0: You know, I mean, the other thing to keep in mind when we're thinking about what happens, not just South Carolina, but beyond, is how, you know, how engaged, what's turnout look like? We don't have like a full, you know, we have a few individual polls about Super Tuesday, primary states. There's been a few, like there was a Virginia poll. I mean, there has been a California poll. We talked about some of these last week. Uh, has there been like a national, like three thousand person Super Tuesday Democratic primary poll that takes into account like, you know, what the different rules are at each state? I mean, so there's a lot still unknown as we think about what's going to happen. We did a poll though that had an oversample of folks who are Democrats and who are in Super Tuesday states, and this is uh, was for all the organization all in together. And one of the questions we asked is, without looking it up, do you know when your state's presidential primary or Caucus will be held, and you know, over forty percent said no, or you know, I you know, I don't know of the folks who live in Super Tuesday Democrats who live in Super Tuesday primary states. So. Which I think, you know, it's not the same as voting, whether or not you know that there's a contest. You know, there are people who know when there's a contest and won't vote. You know, there are people who will find out between now and then that there's a contest and vote, etc. Or they may not know the exact date, but know it's soon. And so answer no. There are a variety of ways to get there. But just as a reminder that when we're thinking about what happens next, there's still a lot of Democrats who may need contact. It's going to change where... You know, what happens, how the turnout scenarios work and some of the polls that you're looking at, there's all of those unpredictabilities are out there.
1: So do we want to take a quick break and then we can talk about the prospects of beating Trump and what people are thinking about uh, 2020?
2: Yeah. Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that. By increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups, it would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion.
1: All right, we are back. So, a quick check in on the president's job approval, I think, to set the scene for this discussion of electability is useful um, because his job approval continues to inch up in the Real Clear Politics polling average. He is now at 46.3% approve, 50.6% disapprove. We are growing ever closer to a not underwater job approval number. We're not there right now. We've still got a ways to go. Um, but we we are slowly but surely inching that way, which is kind of wild to think about. Um, on the other hand, there's plenty of general election polling that has Trump in the red uh, trailing in key states behind his Democratic counterparts, uh, polling out of states like Pennsylvania looks uh, looks somewhat dicey for Trump. Uh, you know, a whole bunch of interesting stuff going on here. Margie, how are Democrats feeling about Trump's electability and the choices they have on offer?
0: Well... We continue to see what we've seen this whole time, which is, you know, Trump is underwater in his job approval rating and he trails a variety of different, you know, most of the fields in most of the battleground states. I mean, a lot of folks were talking about the Quinnipiac, Wisconsin poll that showed Trump ahead, Wisconsin obviously being a key state. And I think that was a little bit of, you know, that was sort of new in terms of the public polling that said in a lot of the other public polls, whether you're talking about, you know, Pennsylvania, other polling out of Wisconsin that came from the University of Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, obviously key, uh, quote unquote, blue wall states, Florida, uh, Trump is down uh, against uh, not all the candidates, but some of them. These are states that, went to Trump. So, you know, for, for them to be generally speaking in most of the public polling to to be for the Democratic candidate, including Democratic candidates who are not universally known yet, like Klobuchar now making her way into a lot of these general election head-to-head polls, uh, Buttigieg, et cetera, who are a little bit less well-known, is a sign, is a continued sign of his vulnerability. I mean, that that continues to be true. At the same time, there is this sense. It's interesting because it's like becomes a little bit of a meme, but it's actually borne out by the data where you have Democrats feeling anxious, nonetheless. You know whether what whether it's based on whether it's based on some tr- you know true perception of the political climate, whether it's based on a reading of public polling data, which you know or just how they're consuming information, um, or whether it's just nervousness about, you know as a result of 16 and feeling that Trump would not win 16, so not wanting to have that feeling again, or whether it's just the fear of Trump winning again, just being so... Horrific. It causes anxiety. I don't know what the reasons why, but you see, it's quite interesting to see in Pew to show that you know Democrats overwhelmingly feel like their side is losing more often than winning, which is not is not something that Republicans seem to feel, despite what happened in 2018, which was you know obviously a lot of clear successes for uh, for Democrats. So Pew found that in a way that was you know really quite striking, and with it, you've like magnified further by ideology, you know, so conservative Republicans were even more likely to feel that their side is winning more more often than losing on the issues that matter. Now, this is not about elections, it's just the issues that matter, but I I suspect they're related. And then in the All In Together poll, we found, I thought this was pretty interesting, that about 10% of the whole electorate were folks who were voting, say they're going to vote Democrat for the Democratic nominee in November, but think Trump will win. So that's, I think, related to all this, this worry about what will happen. That's not, I don't think, it's hard to say, tied to views on a specific candidate or Democratic nominee, but like a broader worry about Trump.
1: So when it comes to looking at the actual polling data in some of these states, a bunch of new polls have all come out from a bunch of different sources. You've got Quinnipiac taking a look at some of those old blue wall states where they have Trump trailing all of his potential Democratic opponents in Michigan and Pennsylvania, but up against all of his potential opponents and by a fairly sizable margin in Wisconsin, which strikes me as odd because on the one hand, I mean, part of what happened in 2016 was the models, like if you look back at what the forecasters were saying after the fact. They said, ah, our models didn't take into account that if Trump does 3% better in Pennsylvania than expected, he's probably also going to do 3% better in demographically similar states like Wisconsin um, or Michigan. So you would think these states would all kind of correlate and move together. This actually shows a pretty big divergence. I mean, Wisconsin was very narrow win for Trump. In 2016, where I think Pennsylvania and Michigan were a little bit less narrow, Um, but now it's showing Wisconsin very strong for Trump while he, you know, has greater struggles in Pennsylvania and Michigan. Then you have UNF putting out some polling in Florida that had Bloomberg as the most electable there with uh, Buttigieg, not so much, but some of that could be name ID Sanders tied with Trump in Florida. Um, it's interesting that that case is one where who he's up against seems to have a bigger role than in some other states. So there's just an awful lot uh, going on here. Um, In our script, we have a note about this uh, global strategy group uh, and Bloomberg campaign memo that sort of suggests that, you know, Sanders would be down ballot trouble for Democrats, which may be true, but I continue to believe that While Sanders' strong performance in current national ballot tests won't hold firm once the full weight and force of the Trump machine gets turned against him and things that, you know, right now are not well-known become more well-known, where for Trump, all the negatives are quite well-known by everybody, um, that that will even out a little bit more. um, But I don't believe that Bernie Sanders could never be president. However, I do believe he could be a liability down ballot for uh, more moderate Democrats. Margie, what's your reaction to that that memo and, and all of this? I
0: can understand why this is, I mean, this was an internal Bloomberg poll, so I can understand why it's, you know, useful for them to share. You know, it's hard to know without sort of seeing, seeing the full top lines, you know, what it means. This is something that candidates always try to think about when they are running in a presidential year, running, you know, even in a midterm year. How do you talk about the president? How do you talk about the national climate? How do you talk about Washington if you are running someplace where people don't like Washington, which is most places, right? And I think showing independence from the party is something that a lot of candidates do. And, you know, and and I think that that's something that a lot of candidates will continue to try to find a way to, you know, thread that needle, regardless of who's the top of the ticket. You know, and I think it's also like, it's it's hard to know without seeing how the conversation evolves.
1: There is also, uh, you know, I, I feel like among Republicans right now. So there's this new polling out from Pew about, uh, do you feel like your side is winning? And I, I actually think a lot of this kind of psychologically explains the choices Republicans made in the 2016 primary to just like go for broke and do something completely different. So Pew has been asking this question, would you say in politics that your side has been losing more often than winning or winning more often than losing on the issues that matter to you? And in the aggregate, back in 2016, both sides were more likely to say losing than winning, although Democrats were pretty split, while Republicans, by a 75 to 22 margin, said we are losing. And so Trump's talk of winning and like, we're just going to do things totally different. If you're sick of losing, come with me. You can really see like the roots of some of this there. And nowadays, the numbers have flipped for Republicans. 69% of Republicans feel like they're winning more often than they're losing. Only 29% feel like they're losing. I think that is a huge piece of why Trump's job approval among Republicans remains as high as it is. Meanwhile, for Democrats now, 80% of them feel like they are losing more often than winning. Only 18% feel they're winning. And I think when your party is in a position of you're like, why can't we catch a break? And why can't we get anything done? You are your range of potential remedies becomes wider. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think, you know, related to some of this kind of concern or worry that you see on the left is, and and I'm surprised it's not actually more, um, but this is a little bit more about the responsibility than the concern, which we've talked about in previous polling. But Pew did some work on how do you feel about tech companies preventing the misuse of the platform in The 2020 election, which is something that obviously a lot of folks have have discussed, you see more Democrats more likely to worry about that 37% of Democrats, you know, worried about that in September of 2018, 26% are worried about it now that's a little both of those numbers are a little bit more than among Republicans and, uh, sorry, confidence that uh, the companies are going to prevent misuse, right? So they're just, you know, they're nobody's really confident. Democrats perhaps a little bit less so, but overwhelmingly Democrats feel a little bit more than Republicans that these companies have a responsibility to prevent the misuse of the platforms. It's something that folks on the left talk about a lot, um, and uh, you see it reflected a little bit, the, those party breaks here. Okay, so let's take a break, and we're going to talk about health, health care, And your health. Okay, so we're back and the Affordable Care Act is 10 years old. So speaking of winning and feeling like your side is winning or not winning, I'm old enough to remember when, you know, a lot of folks, Democrats took tough votes on the ACA or were tough at the time and um, worried about how, what that would mean for their reelection prospects. For some, it it was indeed tough. For others, you know, it was less tough than maybe they had they had feared. But now, the ACA, despite. You know, the political ramifications, I mean, I think there is, you know, the the polls show that it overall continues to be popular and some of the specific components of it continue to be popular and helpful. So this is what Navigator, the uh, work that uh, collaboration we do with a Global Strategy Group, tested a variety of different specific components of the ACA and found a lot of them to be very helpful, both helpful and and people were favorable toward them. So people more likely to support them than say that they were helpful, which I think makes sense. You can think something's a good idea and not necessarily have relied on it. The ones that were the most popular are the ones that you know, have been most popular for a while. So making sure insurance companies can't deny coverage or discriminate based on pre-existing conditions, requiring coverage for things like mammograms or prescription drugs, not putting a, a lifetime limit on coverage, uh, the lifetime caps. Those are things that overwhelmingly majorities say, uh, clear majority say that are very favorable toward them. And not quite half, just under half say that they've been very helpful to them personally. Um, those are the ones that are at the top of the list. You see, a real kind of interesting split between the folks who say, looking at a variety of different worries, things that people worry about versus what they've struggled with, which I think is kind of, it's not quite, it's not necessarily ACA, wasn't framed in terms of the ACA, but just globally, what are people worried about? And the things that rise to the top are, are things related to cost, prescription drugs, pocket expenses, being un- unable to afford emergency medical expense. So despite, you know, the fact that people, um, you know, support the ACA and find a lot of the components really favorable. There's still, you know, a worry about cost that's clearly still top of mind. Although the percent that say that they personally struggled with these costs is about half of all that. So about a quarter, you know, half say that they find these things worrying, a quarter or fewer say that they've actually struggled with them personally over the last year. And then I thought this was particularly interesting was, There's the salience of healthcare. We didn't go into a lot on the show today, but obviously it's something that comes up a lot as in terms of a top-tier issue, a thing that people say they're worried about overall compared to other issues. But when asked how well people feel they understand Trump's position on a variety of issues, things like healthcare, Social Security, Medicare, and the price of prescription drugs are at the bottom of the list in terms of how well people feel they understand Trump's position, not whether they agree with it or not, just how well do they feel they understand it. Uh, majority say they think they understand Trump's position on immigration, the economy and taxes and trade are a little bit lower, guns, but people, a lot fewer say they they feel they have a, a good handle on what Trump's positions are on healthcare.
1: Yeah, and, it, and these are fascinating issues because they're ones where Trump diverges from or is less easily managed by Congressional Republicans, if this makes sense, like you may recall the failed Republican attempt to do repeal and replace AHCA, I think it was. And that was it was a situation where it, it was like a real slog to get anything to move through Congress after all these years of people talking about repeal and replace. And Trump, by many accounts, was not really vocal or, you know, he wasn't out there like doing a sales job on this issue. Like he kind of just let Congress hang itself on this. And uh, on something like Social Security and Medicare, you might think the traditional Republican position is entitlement reform. Let's reform these programs, make them solvent for the future. Let's, you know, whether that includes raising retirement age, et cetera. These are things that not all Republicans are comfortable talking about because many are quite unpopular with the very same older voters that they rely on to get reelected. But Trump has been pretty open about like, no, no, not interested in that. And that has put him at odds with sort of a conventional congressional Republican position. Price of prescription drugs as well. I mean, typically it's this like free market argument that says we can't use government price controls or say, oh, we're going to buy from, you know, if we're buying back from other countries, then. The companies that are inventing the drugs aren't reaping the rewards and the profits from, you know, there's this like free market argument around it. But Trump has kind of rejected that and just talks about like, I want to bring down the cost of prescription drugs. I'm going to he like goes after pharma frequently in, in his remarks. So it, it makes sense to me that these are issues where people are a little less certain about where Trump is, because they're ones where I think his position and sort of a conventional Republican position are not quite aligned. Yep. Okay. So can we talk about the coronavirus? Yes. Let's please talk about the coronavirus.
0: (laughs) I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about the coronavirus. Is it time for me to start personally worrying or not? I know you're not a doctor. I just feel like I need someone to say, yes, you're correct to not worry about this. I'm like, okay, good. I'll keep no, I'm doing I'm not it. a doctor.
1: My primary awareness of all of these issues comes from playing way too many hours of the board game pandemic, which is excellent. But so right. setting that aside, so I went to a very smart source of mine who covers international issues a lot as well as domestic politics. And who is married to uh, someone in the medical science field, has a lot of contacts within the scientific uh, parts of our government, etc. And the basic, what I have heard is that on the one hand, we should not trust things that we hear from the Communist Party of China or, you know, government apparatus is is not, like we should be worried that they are downplaying this. On the other hand, that the scientific community, the the communication between Chinese and American scientists is actually great and fine. And our scientists are getting an accurate picture of what's going on. So, like, the the, the PR is downplaying how scary it really is. But the good news is our scientists actually are, like, on the case. However, what makes me concerned is this very same reporter was like, yeah, I just went out and stocked my basement with, like, two weeks worth of supplies. (laughs) After talking to all of like my wife's like virologist friends and things. I was like, Oh, that's fantastic. Okay. So, I mean, on the, on the one hand, if you are young and healthy, the risk of you getting the virus and then the virus actually killing you is pretty low. But the the, the thing that is scary about coronavirus is that scientists just don't know a lot of stuff. And these things mutate. And so the, it's it's not as though, like, I mean, Ebola was scary because you get Ebola, that is bad news. And the symptoms sound horrendous. And it's so easily, right. sp- I mean, you know, it was just like, oh, we're coronavirus, I think it's, it, I mean, the symptoms are obviously different. It seems as though the fatality rate is 2%, which is much higher than for the normal flu. But the reason why people, why doctors aren't as panicked about the normal flu is it is a sort of a more predictable occurrence. It is easy. They have more information about it. Um, We we know what what a vaccine would look like. We don't know what a vaccine looks like for coronavirus. So interestingly, when you say, um, how in this poll question, this is asked by YouGov, how familiar are you with coronavirus? You know, you have 68% of people in the Philippines who say they are very familiar. You have 56% of people in Indonesia uh, who say they are very familiar. USA is pretty low. USA is pretty low. I feel like if you ask scientists, how familiar are you with coronavirus? It would yeah, be I don't know what I'm low. supposed to answer Like
0: I've seen like a billion headlines about yeah. the coronavirus, but do I know the symptoms? Like, I don't know. I guess it's like the flu. So I guess I would be somewhat familiar. But I mean, it's not like I'm not aware. I'm fully aware that it's happening. <laughs> but yeah. I'm more aware of like the, what it's doing to the stock market than I am of the symptoms but but yeah I mean it's, it seems like America is sort of less concerned or uh, than other parts in, in Asia and uh, in the Middle East which I think is to be expected and then comparing this is from Gallup comparing confidence in the government's ability to handle the coronavirus outbreak is pretty high 77% say they're confident which is higher than Zika, Ebola, swine flu, and bird flu. So if you go all the way back to 2005, so now it's about three quarters who say they're confident. 16% say it'll have a negative, very negative effect on the economy. This is from Gallup and, a, and half say somewhat negative. A third say no negative effect. I, I, that seems, I think we can already say that it's it, it's not true that it's going to have no negative effect. It's having, you know, it's having, I think, at least somewhat of a negative effect. The question is whether it's long-term and how serious. And uh, how worried are you about being exposed to it? And about a third of people say that they're very or somewhat worried about being exposed to it, which is on par with anthrax and SARS. It's lower than West Nile. West Nile, about, a ha- about half who, who said that they were worried. I find those numbers pretty, int- I mean, anthrax was a pretty small percentage of folks who were exposed to it had similar numbers um, who were worried. I mean, coronavirus is, is infecting way, way, way more people than anthrax. But I guess people's perceptions of what's, you know, of risk is is different.
1: Yeah, I mean, and again, it's there's also the, it, I don't know that 98% of people who came in contact with anthrax we're surviving, um, you know, the, the, so I, it, That so that's true. another difference. But I also think that there is still just not as much familiarity in the United States with the scale of what is going on in China. And by that, I mean, like, there's a question that I now have on my like wish list. If I've got space on my next Echelon Insights Omnibus, I'm going to add it, where I want to take like, w- Wuhan, or, you know, maybe I'll, I'll pick a city of some kind that's like, not a top tier not like a shanghai not a beijing but like a city in china that people probably have not heard of and just say like this is a city in china that is you know the the 50th the 50th biggest city in china or whatever it is um if you had to guess would you assume that the population of this city is similar in size to new york city philadelphia uh, Baltimore, you know, and then like, you know, offer like lists of American cities that are pretty well known with like what their population is and just see like, do people understand that the 15th biggest city in China is like bigger than any American city? Like, I don't think people realize the scope of what we're talking about here when it's like, yeah, half of this country can't leave their house. Like what? Yeah. <laughs> this is and so that that to me is why you probably see Americans, I think, underestimating the scale and scope of the potential impacts of this. Yeah. Not to fear model everybody, but like that's it's a we're talking about a lot of people. Right. So
0: you you have to kind of go through a few steps to be as worried as you're supposed to be, right? You have to have some Awareness of the scope and size, right, of, of folks impacted, and also like some, you know, some thoughts or, or awareness of what the what the disease would do, and whatever your relationship is to or your thoughts on how much you trust the information that comes out uh, from China on on public health or our own government's reaction um, and funding of medical research and so on, right? You have to put all that together, plus just like your own risk assessment of whether you feel like you're coming into contact with people who've been traveling abroad and so on. Anyway, so there's a lot to a lot to unpack, but um, I don't know about you. I've been getting like focus group facilities and all kinds of different vendors sending emails about like, are you worried about coronavirus? <laughs> like, here's what you can do about your upcoming trip. So, they're, they're, <laughs> everybody's reacting in some kind of way.
1: What did we? What did we learn this week?
0: I'm not sure. I guess my recommendations, I guess, for the next month would be, you know, to maybe just pause and take some lukewarm takes uh, instead of so many hot takes on on uh, what the polls are showing. And what you think the media narrative shows. One thing we didn't talk about came up a lot in the debate last night is you had candidates talking about their own polling, which is always, <laughs> I always find like an odd thing for somebody to do in a debate, but you know, that's okay, I guess if, if that's what people want to do. But it seems like with your time, you, you might want to talk about something else, but do learn when election day is. That's a good, that's a good thing you can, you can work on if it's cold or not cold where you are and healthcare is great, but you should stay at home if you're sick, whether it's the coronavirus or not.
1: You can find us on Twitter at, at @thepolsters individually at AtMargieOmero and at KSoltis Anderson. You can find us on Facebook or you can find us at www.ThePolsters.com. Thanks. Bye.